ومن أحسن قولا ممن دعا إلى الله وعمل صالحا وقال إنني من المسلمين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولاهما بعد uh, welcome to another uh, Q&A session, our regular Tuesdays. And once again, uh, all of you who are interested in emailing, please you can email at askyq at epicmasjid.org. Once again, askyq at epicmasjid.org. And once again, I keep on reiterating, I cannot email you back your answers. I will choose from the questions that which is, inshallah, the most uh, beneficial for all of you. Uh, those of you that email personal questions, I do apologize, but I cannot answer them so please understand uh, please try to choose general questions that lots of people can benefit from so we begin inshallah our first question brother Zahid from Wiley Texas Wiley is literally the next city out off of Plano so Wiley Texas he is a high school student in our neighboring district and he says that uh, his school has allowed Muslim students to pray Jumu'ah on Fridays during the lunch break however he says that the lunch timing obviously when the time changes, those of you that are not in America, you should know that our time changes. We have an hour that goes back, an hour that goes forward in fall and in spring. He says when the time changes, then the lunch slot comes before Salat al-Dhuhr. And so he is saying that what do we do that our lunch break therefore will finish before Dhuhr starts uh, during some of the months and then most of the months it is perfect timing. So he heard an opinion that he may pray Jumu'ah in this time slot and he wants to know what uh, my position is on this uh, regard. So this is a very good question. And it deals with uh, the beginning timing and will also cover the end timing of Salat al-Jumu'ah. Now before I answer the fiqh or the technical side, uh, I want to uh, firstly encourage this uh, brother Zahid, mashallah, for taking the initiative. It looks like that he's already involved in the Muslim Student Association at a high school. Uh, they're engaged with the community. They want to start their own Jumu'ah. And uh, this is something that I encourage every single one of you to try to make sure that you are praying Jumu'ah prayers. Those of you that are in high school, those of you that are at your workplaces, obviously those that are adults, it is obligatory. The adult males, it is obligatory. Uh, and those of you that are even in school, I know that sometimes it is difficult. Uh, the least you can do is try, inshallah ta'ala, to petition uh, your, uh, your, your, your high school or your school if you have a good number of students and ask for a time slot and an empty room. And alhamdulillah, across, at least in the uh, United States of America, I know for a fact that many, many uh, high schools actually have Jumu'ah on their campuses, uh, including the one that is closest to our masjid, the public high school. This is a Western public high school, the closest uh, this called the Plano High School, uh, East Plano High School. This is in fact, uh, uh, they have Salat al-Jumu'ah on campus and one of their own local students gives it. So I encourage all of you to try your best to have Jumu'ah uh, in your schools. If you are able to get permission uh, to have it in your schools and if you can even go to a masjid, which is of course probably logistically far more difficult, but still try your best to do that. And by the way, even before I answer, uh, you know, the the, the this question from a fiqhi point, uh, the, the, the reality of 
trying to understand our uh, situation in America and fine-tuning fiqh. So uh, some, uh, some time ago I said that we should have a uh, rethink through some of the rules of fiqh and reform what needs to be reformed. And unfortunately some of the brothers really misunderstood and they made a very uh, huge deal out of it, completely misquoting and, and you know, going against my methodology quite clearly. And you know, may Allah uh, uh, forgive them uh, for this um, uh, egregious uh, calumny and accusation. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that this is a perfect example. Our earlier books of fiqh, living in an ideal Islamic land, said there should be the least number of Jumu'ahs possible in a city. And the maximum people should come together for every Jumu'ah. In fact, sometimes you even find some books, they said there should really only be one Jumu'ah in the whole city, or at least in one entire district of a city, there should only be one Jumu'ah. And you know, that makes complete sense when you are in a Muslim land and everything is gonna shut down and we are expected to go pray Jumu'ah. But in North America and in all minority country situations where it is extremely problematic to take two, three hours and drive half an hour and then listen and then come back. And in fact, we have to understand not everybody even has that level of Iman to ask their boss for a two hour break. And not everybody, even if they ask their boss, will, will get a two, three hour break because the, the, the workload is different. And the person who's working as a laborer, let's say in a factory, doesn't have the privilege of an executive or a CEO that has much more privilege. So looking at the situation in North America and across Europe and across the Western world, we should encourage as many Jumu'ahs as possible in order to to facilitate people to come to any Jum'ah. And I know for a fact in a number of cities, you know, especially in the cities that have large corporations, Google and Microsoft and all of this, right? That they have massive buildings uh, right next to each other, maybe next to meaning like five minutes away, not like literally next to, but five, 10 minutes away. But it is a separate campus. Security in, security out, to get from there to another is a huge nightmare. Employees of one corporation cannot go to the other corporation easily, even though the physical distance is not that much, but because there's so many Muslims working in these corporations, and yes, these all companies, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, all of them, they have, mashallah, Boeing, they have lots and lots of Muslims work in these corporations. And I know for a fact, I visited some of these companies that they have Jumu'ah on site. And sometimes even, some of these corporations themselves are so big that they will have multiple Jumu'ahs in different office buildings. So they have unit one will have his Jumu'ah, unit two will have its Jumu'ah, simply because the corporation does not facilitate two, three hour breaks on Friday. There's a lot of work to be done. And so during the lunch break, they might get a little bit extra on Jumu'ah. And so there's enough people to pray Jumu'ah in one office building, 30, 40, 50 people in one room. And then in the next room, 30, 40, they can't even have a room of 500 people on those facilities, even though the masjid might be a 15 minute drive, which is in America, 15, 20 minutes is a reasonable distance to go for Jumu'ah. But because of the quantity of Muslims and the logistics of going in and out, and the fact that if if you were to put hurdles and barriers, many of those that come for Jumu'ah would not actually drive all the way there for Jumu'ah. So in order to do this, looking at the situation, there is no problem that we look at it in a reasonable manner and say, hey, if you're able to form a Jumu'ah in which more people come, and subhanAllah, if you're going to put more and more barriers, the level of Iman is already so low. And a person who might take the elevator down to the second floor to have a Jumu'ah, and he's not gonna go 20 minutes to the masjid, and then 
come back at a late lunch break and then have problems with his boss, you are allowing him to come and pray. The high school student, right? The high school student, they cannot leave the premises usually. Most most high schools would not allow you to leave the high school during Jumu'ah time. But if there's 40, 50 students, even 20 students, even 10 students, and they petition and they say, hey, can we have a small gathering uh, every Friday? And in America, generally speaking, you know, they're gonna be receptive because uh, of the freedom of religion. They can allow this to happen. So maybe somebody who studied earlier fiqh will say, astaghfirullah, you're having a Jumu'ah 20 minutes away from the masjid, five minutes away from the masjid. It's better for them not to pray Jumu'ah. And we say, yaqi, please, that might have been the case when the Iman was high and we're living in an ideal Muslim land. But given the reality, between no Jumu'ah and between a second, third, fourth, fifth Jumu'ah, there is no question that we need to quote unquote reform. This is what I was saying when I talked about reformation, quote unquote. I'm not talking about, you know, a complete rehaul of the Sharia Billah. I'm saying certain rulings that make a lot of sense in Muslim majority situations do not make sense in Muslim minority situations. And we have to be open-minded enough to see the Sharia did not say, Allah did not say, have one Jumu'ah in a city. The Prophet did not say this. There is no unanimous consensus. So here we have a young lad, I went into all of this tangent to clarify and explain. Here we have a young lad, he's saying that we're praying Jumu'ah, but now they have another issue. And the issue is the timing of Salatul Jumu'ah. And that lunchtime comes sometimes when lunchtime finishes, it is before the Dhuhr timing in our locality. And so maybe lunch finishes, I don't know, 11.30 and Dhuhr might start at 12.15. So he's saying, what are we going to do now? That for those two, three months when Dhuhr and, and lunch uh, you know, are different timings, what is to be done. So we say that when it comes to this issue, realize that even from the earliest of time, there have been two opinions about the beginning timing of Jumu'ah. And it is true that the majority of scholars, the Hanafis, the Shafi'is, the Malikis, they said that Jumu'ah time begins after the zawal, after the sun begins its decline. So when the sun reaches its zenith, then when it begins to decline, this is the time of Dhuhr and it is the time of Jumu'ah. So for these three madhabs, according to them, that would not be the time of Jumu'ah. So they would say that this is not going to constitute Jumu'ah. And that is a valid opinion. And they base this um, on a number of traditions of them. It is reported that the Prophet ﷺ would pray Jumu'ah when the sun began to go down. And An-Nawawi remarks that Imam al-Shafi'i said, Imam al-Shafi'i said, the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and all of the Imams, uh, the, the, the leaders after them, they pray Jumu'ah after the Zawal. And so the notion is that the default of the Ummah has been to pray Jumu'ah after the sun begins its Zawal. However, there is a dissenting madhab, and that is the Hanbali madhab. The Hanbali madhab says that it is allowed to pray Jumu'ah before the Zawal. Some of the scholars of the Hanbali madhab even said you can pray Jumu'ah when Salat al-Duha comes in very early on. However, the default of the madhab, uh, which is the position that is the mashhur and the, and, the, and the fatwa given, is that you may pray slightly before the Zawal. You may pray an hour before the Zawal, and not like five hours, not before Fajr, I mean, sorry, not after Fajr, but you may pray Jumu'ah, uh, you know, before Zawal by a little bit. So they say Jumu'ah, and Dhuhr are not the same time slots. They say Jumu'ah begins a little bit before Dhuhr and some say a lot before uh, Dhuhr. And they base this on the hadith of Jabir radiallahu an that is reported in Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, authentic hadith that uh, that we would pray Jumu'ah with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and then we would return to our 
camels and uh, take them to the pastures when the sun began to go down, the zawal began. So the fact that they pray Jumu'ah, then they go back to the pasture and they go to their camels and the sun begins its zawal. This means Jumu'ah must have been prayed before the zawal. And Salamat ibn al-Aqwa narrates that we used to pray with the Prophet sallallahu Jumu'ah and then we would go home and the walls would not have enough shadow for us to find comfort in them. So the walls, so the walls of the streets, the walls of the, 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 the passageways, right? So when you're in the heat of the sun, you want to walk in the shade. And Salamat ibn al-Aqwa says, when we would come back, the walls would not have even enough of a shadow that we could come under their shade, which means that it was basically at Zawal time, which means that Jumu'ah was prayed before Zawal. And Sahil ibn Sa'ad radiallahu ta'ala an reported that uh, مَا كُنَّا نَقِيلُ وَلَا نَتَغَذَّى إِلَّا بَعْدَ الْجُمُعَةِ فِي عَهْدِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ We would only take our afternoon naps and eat our lunch after the Jumu'ah, during the time of the Prophet And their afternoon naps were typically done around Zawal time. So the, the siesta, you know, the, 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 the common habit of the siesta, which is found in many uh, countries, uh, especially in the Spanish-speaking countries, and that's because of the Arabs, mashallah. The Arabs had the qaylula. And so the, uh, the, the, in Andalus, they took this uh, habit and it became something common. And to this day, by the way, the only European country that I'm aware of that has that qaylula, I'm sure somebody's going to correct me in the comments, but with the ones I have visited, uh, no European country that I have visited shuts down uh, during the daytime. But Spain is one of those countries that they have this qaylula system, just like in Arabia and other places where during the day, nobody does anything and there's like two shifts here. In any case, the point is that uh, the point of having that afternoon siesta, it was done when the sun was at its zenith. And uh, Sahil ibn Sa'ad said, we would only take our qaylula and we would eat our lunch after Jumu'ah, which indicates, it's an indication that the uh, Jumu'ah was done before the Zawal. And this is why Ibn Qudama, the great giant of the Hanbali Madhab, uh, who wrote the encyclopedia Al-Mughni, uh, he says that, وَإِن صَلُّ الْجُمُعَةَ قَبْلَ الزَّوَالِ فِي السَّاعَةِ السَّادِسَةِ أَجْزَأَتْهُمْ If the people pray Jumu'ah, right before the Zawal, in the last hour, the sixth hour, here means the sixth Sa'asadisa means after Fajr by six hours. Yani if Zawal is 12 o'clock, he means 11 o'clock. That's what he means, right? So the point is that before Zawal, by an hour, if you pray Jumu'ah, the Hanbali Madhab uh, allows it and it is completely permissible. So according to this famous Madhab, the great Madhab of Imam Ahmad, and they have plenty of evidences to back them up, they say that it is completely allowed to pray Jumu'ah uh, during the time frame that you are talking about. By the way, just FYI, very quickly, the end timing of Jumu'ah, there's also two opinions on this. And once again, you have three madhabs say one thing and one madhab say another. So the Hanbalis, the Shafi'is, and the Hanafis say that Jumu'ah time ends uh, with the beginning of Asr. So just like Dhuhr time ends with the beginning of Asr, so too Jumu'ah time uh, uh, ends Jumu'ah time ends when Asr begins. By the way, footnote here. Interestingly enough, the Hanafis have a different Asr time. So even amongst the Hanafis, the Jumu'ah time would be longer because the Hanafis say when the shadow reaches double its length is the time for Asr and the Shafi'is and Hanbalis and Maliki say when the shadow reaches one its length, then it becomes Asr time. So according to the Hanafi Madhab, technically Jumu'ah is much later can be prayed anyway uh, than the other two, but they say the same and that is that 
when uh, Asr time comes in, Jumu'ah time finishes. Uh, the one madhab that, that has another phrasing, so again, technically these are two opinions, right? So I say it's one opinion because the wording is the same when Asr time comes in. But in reality, when Asr time comes in itself is two opinions. And the Hanafi said one thing and the other madhab said another thing. So we have over here already two opinions when Jumu'ah ends. But there is another opinion and that is the Maliki madhab. Uh, and especially the giants of the Maliki madhab, Sahnun and others, they explicitly say this, that Jumu'ah can be prayed any time before Maghrib as long as Asr is also prayed. So they say that Jumu'ah can be delayed and as long as you pray Jumu'ah and then Asr and then Maghrib time comes in, you are uh, fine. So the Malikis kind of extend Jumu'ah all the way to let's say 20 minutes before Maghrib or 10 minutes before Maghrib. They say give the khutbah, pray uh, Jumu'ah and then you pray Asr and then uh, if you have to they're saying and then uh, you are fine here. Now uh, therefore the Hanbali Madhab allows an earlier Jumu'ah. The Hanafi Madhab would allow a later Jumu'ah. The Malikis would allow a latest uh, Jumu'ah. Now, question here. Is it allowed for this student uh, to pick the Hanbali Madhab even though they might themselves be Hanafi or Shafi'i? And again, I have my position on this and that is that we do not pick and choose madhabs based upon following desires, based upon shahwa, based upon making life something that is easy for me. But we may follow an opinion from another madhab if there is a need to do so. And the goal is the preservation of the deen. The goal is to make the religion easier, not to make life easier. And in this case, our student here uh, in the Wiley district has one of two options. If he sticks with the Hanafi and Shafi'i and Maliki, and I don't mind that per se, and that's fine if he wants to do that. That's, I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong per se. If he wants to be pedantic and stick to the madhab, and the school district is not allowing them to go pray in the local masjid, which is frankly, that's not gonna happen, that you cannot expect the school to allow the 10th graders to leave the premises. It's really not even wise or, or legal to do so. So I understand the school won't allow them to do that. So what you are saying essentially is there will be no Jumu'ah. And I understand some people are so adamant to stick with their madhab, they're gonna say, we don't care, that's fine, no Jumu'ah, that's what Allah and His Messenger want. I only push back and say, but my dear brother, yani, these madhahib are human constructs. These madhahib, great ulama attempted to drive Allah's laws and inshallah they're all good people. And if we find an opinion that is better for the deen, not easier for our nafs, not easier for shahwa, not that we want to follow a desire and this shaykh allowed this and we like to this food, this shaykh allowed this drink, we like this drink, this shaykh. No, we don't pick and choose because of our sensual desires. But if we were to choose, a position in order to make our Iman stronger, in order to preserve the deen of a 15 year old child, then me personally, I am all for this. And if I were in charge of this, uh, you know, the school or whatnot, I mean, meaning if they came to me and the brother is coming to me, I will say, you may follow, not only you may, you should follow the Hanbali Madhab in your school district for the time being. Then when you become an adult and you are in control of your affairs and you wish to remain Hanafi in this regard, no problem, Alhamdulillah, stick to your Madhab where you can. But in this circumstance, when there is no alternative and you want to follow a position in order that your Iman increases and that you listen to the dhikr of Allah and that your fellow students come together and have a khutbah and you feel that you're Muslim on Jumu'ah day, well then of course this is a no-brainer. You should take the Hanbali Madhab position and pray Jumu'ah in your lunch break throughout the entire year. There is no haraj or problem in this and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best.
We now move on to our uh, next question. Bismillah. So we have uh, another question, very complicated question. I'm going to try to summarize this. Brother Tariq from Auckland, New Zealand. MashaAllah, Tabarakallah. I'm very happy we have viewers all the way from, what do you call New Zealand? Down, down under? I don't know because down under is Australia and you're even down or downer than Australia. So you are, MashaAllah, yani, um, uh, what do you call them? Uh, Kiwis, right? That's what you call you guys, Kiwis, MashaAllah. This is not an insult, brothers and sisters. The people in New Zealand, they call themselves uh, Kiwis. They they like this term. So um, I have never been, by the way, hint, hint, uh, wink, wink, maybe one day, inshallah. Uh, so Brother Tariq, from Auckland, New Zealand, he emails and he asks that recently a fatwa has been given by a national council of ulama in a particular Muslim land, there's no need to mention the land over here, saying that Bitcoin is haram and he has heard me state in the past that Bitcoin is halal. So in light of this new fatwa, he is asking, can I comment on it and what are my thoughts uh, about this? So. To respond uh, to this question briefly without trying to rehash an entire lecture I gave um, uh, about uh, Bitcoin in the past that realize that this is the fatwa that has just been released by a particular Muslim country. To be honest, I read it, there's nothing new in it per se. Uh, the same arguments are hashed and rehashed about uh, Bitcoin and about uh, cryptocurrencies overall for the last six, seven years. And respected ulama and respected councils have spoken about this. And there are predominantly two main camps. The first of them, which is this country and other uh, grand, you know, uh, great scholars, I should say, they say that it is completely impermissible, it is haram. And they have a number of, you know, various evidences, they, you know, five or six they mention, and I have gone over this in a longer Q&A. Uh, and the second uh, position, which is what I have advocated and the Fiqh Council of North America, and many uh, finance experts uh, across the globe, I have read a number of fatawas from scholars in England, from scholars in Malaysia, from scholars in France, from scholars in Saudi Arabia, uh, who have written treatises and papers on uh, Bitcoins, uh, on Bitcoin in particular, that they say that it is halal. And uh, in the end of the day, really, uh, dear brother, you will have to follow the authorities whom you trust because this is uh, a new matter and both sides have respected ulama and scholars. And I have been teaching respect of scholarly opinions, you know, even as I position or even if I have championed my own position and argue my own case, this is my opinion. In the end of the day, dear brother, you have to follow the group of scholars that you trust and the rest is, you know, uh, uh, between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But you've asked me to comment on this and I will simply comment by stating that the position of those who say that it is permissible, Bitcoin is permissible and I'm one of them and the Fiqh Council of North America that I belong to also gave this fatwa is basically the, the, the default, they don't need to bring any evidences. They say the default when it comes to all types of transactions is that they are permissible. Whoever bans it, whoever makes it haram, the proof of burden is on them. And they say, we say, I say that all of these evidences that they bring to talk about Bitcoin being haram, do not reach the level of making it haram. The max that they can say is that it is speculative and perhaps dangerous for an investment and perhaps not wise to do. But to make something haram based upon the arguments that they bring, we feel, many scholars feel that they simply haven't done that. And because of this, Bitcoin remains upon its default, which is that it is halal. In other words, the onus of the proof is on them. The onus of the burden is on them. And every single 
single point that they bring to make Bitcoin haram, if you were to take that point, you could apply it to many other things that the same group makes halal. Please understand what I'm saying here. Every single point that they bring to say that Bitcoin is haram, you can bring that same issue, whether it's speculation, whether it's uh, the fact that, you know, we don't know the, 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 the price is going to be, whether it's the fact that they believe it doesn't have tangible value, uh, and we can extrapolate this to other things as well, that you think it doesn't have tangible value, the people think it does have tangible value. So whatever uh, criticism that they bring, you can extrapolate it to other things that the same group will allow, and therefore we, we we find that in reality, the aspects that they bring to criticize uh, Bitcoin are not strong enough to make it um, haram. And also realize that uh, the issue of cryptocurrencies is, is overall a relatively new market. It's literally a decade old, a decade and you know a year, I mean, 11 years literally. And so there's a lot of controversies and don't be surprised if people's fatwas changed or are modified over time. A lot of people, a lot of scholars are not really understanding what Bitcoin is and, and cryptocurrencies in general. And uh, you know, I advise those of you that are interested to basically do your own research. By the way, each cryptocurrency, it has a white paper uh, that is authored by uh, the people who have founded the particular cryptocurrency and the information about it is, uh, uh, is available online. This white paper, it, uh, it uh, throws light on a number of aspects most importantly, the purpose behind the Bitcoin, uh, sorry, the purpose behind the crypto technology, the cryptocurrency, and also the technology that, it, that is used. Now, uh, the issue uh, of Bitcoin in particular, there have been quite a lot of fatwas given about Bitcoin in particular. I am not aware of any detailed fatwa that has gone into cryptocurrencies overall. I'm sure there are, I just haven't come across them. Cryptocurrencies is broader than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the first and the most famous, and as of today, it is the most expensive, or as of right now, it is the most expensive uh, Bitcoin. But the fatwas that have been given are particularly about Bitcoin, and you can extrapolate them to Ethereum and to some of the more established uh, coins. The problem comes, there's no question that because of the success of Bitcoin, a lot of uh, cryptocurrencies have been formed that are completely useless. They are formed by unscrupulous people who basically want to enact a large Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme is where you take the investment of the later group in order to pay off the earlier group so that it looks to the earlier group that a profit has been made. The people feel there's a profit being made and so they come in, the next wave is then used to pay the middle wave and then the middle wave makes a profit and and then when you get a very large profit, all of a sudden somebody disappears, the Ponzi scheme collapses, and it turns out it was a huge fraud from the beginning. And this is named after one of the first people to do this, so Ponzi was his name, so it's called the Ponzi scheme. There's no question that some of the newer cryptocurrencies, uh, many of them might actually be elaborate Ponzi schemes. However, just because some of these or many of these are Ponzi schemes, it doesn't mean that every one of them is. So we don't throw out you know, all of the apples in the barrel just because one or two or even 10 apples are, are bad or, or corrupted. We look at them, you know, bit by bit, <laughs> bit by bit, pun intended with Bitcoin. And uh, Bitcoin in particular, the Fiqh Council has issued a fatwa by naming Bitcoin only. And we did not talk about the rest of the cryptocurrencies. Now we can extrapolate, as we said, to the stable and the established uh, currencies uh, in the cryptocurrency market, such as Ethereum, such as Cardano, such as uh, Tether. These are established by now, and uh, the Fiqh Council's fatwa can easily be extrapolated to these ones as well. Basically, any established coin that has a legitimate purpose and that is based on the block, uh, blockchain technology, uh, it does appear that 
that, you know, once it is established and people are now actually using it uh, in the real world, that inshallah it will meet the same criteria as uh, Bitcoin. Now, as I said, the problem comes these fatwas that make Bitcoin haram, uh, they use generic generic things, generic matters that are not themselves applied consistently to other matters. So for example, one of the biggest things that is mentioned is they say the price is speculative. We do not know one day is gonna go high, the other day is gonna go low. And of course, so are the prices of stocks. So are the prices of currency trade. We do not know if there's a crisis in, let's say Japan tomorrow, Japan, uh, the, the Japanese yen and the American dollar, the, uh, the, the, the exchange rate might change completely. It's very volatile, especially if a country is engaging in trade or civil war or something of this nature, things might happen. Just because it's speculative, it does not make it haram. The fact that the price is unknown or the price might easily go up and down does not make uh, the, the product uh, haram or the issue haram. Uh, another issue that is raised is that Bitcoin is not backed by a government, hence it is not an established currency. And this is uh, a semi-valid point in that it is not backed by a government. But then the next issue, hence it is not an established currency, that's where the big question mark comes because the Quran and Sunnah does not define what a currency is. And especially in our times, when pretty much all of the currencies or most of the currencies of the world are no longer linked to actual gold and silver. You know, President Nixon in 1971 famously, he uh, delinked the US dollar from gold. And so what exactly is a currency? What constitutes mal? What can be used to, be, uh, to, to exchange commodities or to use as uh, the basic measure by which to buy and sell things? What has monetary value? Is it only gold and silver? Some fuqaha said that by the way, and there are people even today calling for a return of the gold standard and the gold dinar. And you know, I mean, utmost respect to them. I have nothing against that. And you know, uh, in some ways, wallahi, it makes a lot of sense. I'm not against that, but that's not how the world actually works. And the American dollar and the British uh, pound sterling and you know, the Japanese yen, they are not linked to any actual commodity. They are quite literally printed by their governments and people ha give value to them because they trust their governments. So because of this, quite a number of fuqaha, even in early Islam, even in medieval Islam, they did they they said that that mal, a monetary uh, you know currency, does not have to be tangible per se. And many of the Shafi'i scholars, Imam Musyuti and others, are of this opinion. Even some of the modern Hanafis, and Mufti Taqir Uthmani, uh, is also of the opinion that if a non-tangible uh, uh, item such as hukuk or rights and benefits attains value according to the custom of the people, then it can be treated as mal. And so Mufti Taqi and others, Imam Suyuti before him and whatnot, they say we look at the urf or the prevalent customs of the people. We look at what people do business with. And if they give value to something, and if they consider something to be worthy of value, then it can in fact gain that value. And the whole point of Bitcoin is to break away from centralized banks. Those fuqaha who criticize Bitcoin by saying it's not backed up by a government, 
with utmost respect, it's as if they've kind of lost the whole point of Bitcoin because that is exactly what Satoshi, the founder of Bitcoin, actually intended. He wanted a currency that is decentralized. He wanted a currency that is not linked to any government because he felt that governments are manipulative, that governments are elitist, that governments are themselves inflating the value of their own currency by printing or not printing or by doing whatever. So he wanted a currency that is truly global and that has no one entity or cabal that monitors it. And he wanted a, a, a currency that would be decided, its price would be decided by all of mankind. Its market value will be equally, everybody gets to decide how much uh, you know, uh, a Bitcoin is worth. Not the elitist banks or the governments or whatnot. He wanted it to be a truly open, democratic, if you like, uh, system. So the notion of Bitcoin not being backed by a government is absolutely correct but that's the whole point of the uh, Bitcoin. So the claim that Bitcoin has imaginary value, I mean, to be cynical here, the same can be said, to be brutally honest, of, of, of the American dollar or the British pound. That technically, I mean, if you were to use, if you were to go to the jungles of, you know, some land that has no uh, fiat currency and try to use these this paper money, they would just look at you and say, what, what is this? What am I going to do with this, right? And uh, there's an example that, uh, you know, uh, uh, has, has been given by a certain scholar uh, who talked about uh, uh, Bitcoin. I forgot his name now. I'm not trying to take credit for this example, but uh, I remember hearing this in a lecture that the example of Bitcoin somewhat is like when you go to an amusement park and you at the, at the when you enter the amusement park you hand over some money and you get some tokens and these tokens are used for rides inside the amusement park right some rides have one coin some rides have two coins now these coins they have value inside of the amusement park and they have value within that system. And everybody understands when you're within that system that this coin, this, this token, it has value. However, outside of the amusement park, if you were to take this you know, token that is used in the amusement park and you were to try to buy food outside of the amusement park or you go to another place, they're gonna just look at you, what is this? We don't know what it is. So this token has value amongst a certain group of people and it has no value amongst another group of people. The fact that one group does not consider it to have value doesn't mean that it actually doesn't have value. And a simple example here, that suppose you purchase, let's say 10 of these tokens, you go to the amusement park, you have uh, uh, 10 of these tokens, okay? And you wanna play some games and you know, you wanna do some rides and whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, your, your, your wife calls you up and says, where are you? Uh, you? You have some guests coming. By the way, what are you doing at an amusement park without your wife? There's but anyway, hypothetical example. Your wife calls you up and says, you, you need to be home. And you have these 10 tokens, right? And you have to leave the amusement park. What if you were to sell these tokens on the spot to somebody else? And, and suppose that that person didn't want to walk all the way back to the entrance. Suppose it's like, you know, Disney World. Those of you that have been, it's a massive, you know, park and you don't use cash in there, by the way. You do not use actual cash. They have a, their own currency, you know, inside, by the way, this is real. They have their own currency, their own tokens and whatnot inside a Disney World, right? So suppose that person didn't want to walk all the way 20 minutes and those tokens, you purchase them for $10. You're like, okay, uh, I have these 10 tokens. You want them for 20? Instead of walking back, I have them right here. And suppose the, 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 the token place closed down and now you have the tokens, you have the ability to sell them inside the park. 
Is anybody gonna say that is haram? It's clear, it's halal, because you have the tokens and this person wants to buy them. And according to you and this person, this token has meaningful value. It has something that the people inside this park, they, uh, they, they believe. So what exactly constitutes fake currency? In reality, a currency is only as strong as the people who believe in it. And the more people believe in it, the stronger it becomes. So you now have established cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin is the most established. And because it has a limited amount and because it is having every so many years and within uh, you know a, a few decades, there will be no more Bitcoins to actually produce, right? So Bitcoins are being mined if you know how they're produced. And so once you purchase a Bitcoin, you are, or, you know, uh, or, or even a fraction of a Bitcoin, that that is it. You are taking a permanent, you know, uh, portion, and and uh, once the Bitcoin runs out, there will not be any more Bitcoins produced. After that, it's going to be bartering. It's going to be handing Bitcoins over back and forth. The same goes for Ethereum and Cardano and Tether and all of these major ones that they do have value amongst the people who believe in them. Millions and millions of people. In fact, some governments have now opened up the door to accept Bitcoin as their official currencies as well. A number of governments have begun this, right? And so the claim that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value is simply the same as saying, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the money that is used inside of Disney World has no value. No, it does have value for the people who believe in it. By the way, just FYI, when it comes to cryptos and Bitcoin, there are two major categories of people. The first of them, well, there's a third, they don't want to get involved, that's fine. Two that are actually involved. The first of them, they want to get rich off of it in dollars or in their currency. So they want to buy when it's dip and then want to sell when it rises, right? And this is probably the majority of the people. They want to buy and this is in and of itself halal because it's like imagine if the, 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 the Japanese uh, yen and the American dollar, uh, imagine if you felt because you were expert in Japanese, uh, you know, foreign policy, you felt that, you know, uh, the dollar is going to rise in power. So you invested in this in order to then mark it off of the Japanese yen. That's your speculation. It's halal in and of itself, you know, as long as it's done on the spot and, and, and the money exchange is done immediately, it is halal. So if you do this with Bitcoin as well, it is intrinsically halal, nothing wrong with that uh, per se. But you have a second group of people and these are called the hodlers, H-A-D-L, hodl. And that basically means you're gonna hold on and never let go. And these people actually believe that Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies will eventually replace the dollar or if not replace, at least become an actual bona fide global currency. Now that might seem far-fetched, but if anybody is following what's going on in the world, day by day news keeps on coming out that seems to indicate that Bitcoin and Ethereum and these major brands really are situating themselves to become a de facto currency within maybe even a decade, if not earlier than that. So what people used to scoff at five, seven years ago, now it seems to be pretty uh, pretty mainstream and, and perhaps even you can see it in the near future. Anyway, the point being that um, the, the, the claim that uh, Bitcoin is haram because it is imaginary or because it is speculative, or I mean, some people say it's haram because uh, Bitcoin is used for haram purposes. And again, this is, I mean, with utmost respect, whoever says this, I, I really think they haven't studied uh, the basics of, of the reality of how Bitcoin is being used. Of course, Bitcoin is used for haram. Is cash not used for haram? If cash itself cannot, can it not be used for haram? Of course it can. 
to make something haram because you, an evil person is using it for haram makes no sense. It depends on the functionality. In and of itself, currencies are neutral. And whether somebody uses them for good or evil, the currency itself will remain neutral. Now what this group says is that the anonymity of the user is what makes it haram. And to respond to this, one can say, you know what, Ani, the anonymity of a cash giver can also be, you can come with a you know full veil and, and give a cash over to some criminal or something. And even, by the way, wire transfers. I mean, was it last year where almost a billion dollars were, you know, wired uh, via, via, via an elaborate scam in Bangladesh somewhere, something like this, some, some major, uh, you know, scandal happened. I mean, where there's a will, there's a way. To make all of bank money haram, meaning bank wire transfers, because somebody can use it for haram. To make all of cryptos or Bitcoin haram, because people buy drugs or do haram because of it. Again, it's not a, uh, uh, it's not a, a legitimate reason to make the entire currency or the entire issue haram. These are simply, uh, like I said, the max that can be said, you tell the person to use it for um, halal. So the, the, the fatwa uh, of the fiqh council and others remains, and, uh, and I myself don't see any problem to rethink through this, that all of these issues that are being raised uh, about Bitcoin and others, they have been responded to quite quite easily, to be honest. And I really don't see the max that can be said, by the way, the fact that these councils say that it is halal, like the fiqh council, that doesn't mean that they are endorsing you to go and actually use it. They're simply saying it's not haram. And in fact, in our fiqh council, we actually said at the very last line is that we caution people to, yes, just because it's halal doesn't mean it's wise. They're two different things. You can, it's something can be halal, but unwise. So you have to yourself think about whether you want to get involved. Uh, yes, it is a volatile market. And the sharia does ask that you preserve your wealth and therefore, what the advice that I would give is the advice that many people are giving, do not invest in cryptos and especially in Bitcoin and what and, and, and whatnot, more than you can afford to lose. Be cautious and it is best to be cautious. And if you want to avoid it completely, no doubt that that would be the safest uh, thing to do. Now, as for other cryptocurrencies, uh, as I said, this is a case by case basis. And uh, I don't think anybody can say that all cryptocurrencies are halal because some of them are clearly Ponzi schemes and some of them are clearly uh, meant to deceive. Some of them are used for, like they're meant to use for filth or pornography or, or haram. So clearly any crypto that is meant to be used for drugs and whatnot. So the purpose of it, in other words, the name and the transaction, it is meant for haram. There are specific, niche specific, a lot of people don't know this. There are niche specific cryptocurrencies. So for example, there's cryptocurrencies for dentists, that's a valid cryptocurrency. There's cryptocurrencies for the types of business transactions. There's cryptocurrencies for niche markets. They're saying this is gonna be the way forward. Okay, I mean, I understand that, but there are cryptocurrencies for haram things as well. like drugs like alcohol, like yani fahish and whatnot. Clearly, those cryptocurrencies are harm, no question about it. And there are also cryptocurrencies that seem to be very fake or Ponzi schemes. Those two would be haram. But any currency that is based on your standard blockchain technology and is established by large groups of people such that really it's impossible, really almost impossible, realistically impossible for it to collapse or become a Ponzi scheme. Generally speaking, uh, the default of the Sharia would still be that these types of things are halal. Whether they're wise or not, that is up to you to decide. And the default position that I would say is that do not get involved in cryptos unless A, you really know what you're doing, you have studied, you have done your job researching, and then B, you only put in enough that 
you can really afford to lose if la qadarullah something were to happen then yani it's a loss but it's not the end of your livelihood or life so be wise the sharia wants you to protect your income and savings and so with that I respect the, the scholars who gave this fatwa. I respect the council. May Allah Azza wa Jal. An interest, by the way, I have to say this. The country that said it is haram last week, the neighboring country, another Muslim majority country, their council said it is halal. So go figure. You have two Muslim majority countries, right? And one council said it is haram, and the council next door said it is halal. So again, with utmost respect to all of our viewers here and, and to the people of the council, you have to decide who do you trust, and you have to decide whether the person that you're listening to really does understand what cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin is, and whether they've done the research and whether they're qualified to issue the verdict. You make that decision and then leave the rest. Don't worry, respect the other opinion. And I respect this council and the fatwa that it has given, and you follow what you think is the, the, the better opinion Wallahu ta'ala alam. And with that, inshallah, we come to the conclusion of today's lecture. We'll continue ta'ala in our next session. Until then, salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. تعجل في يومين فلا إثم عليه ومن تأخر فلا إثم عليه لمن اتقى واتقوا الله واعلموا أنكم إليه تحشرون